this time as we study and guide us as we look at your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Joshua 7. We've kind of gotten to the end of what most people know about the book of Joshua with the conquering of Jericho. Uh, and you think about this, how many of you know what happens after this point of Jericho? There's one other story, which will be the one we cover tonight, that you may or may not know if you've studied at all. But pretty much the Battle of Jericho is where most people stop in the book of Joshua. Just as when you read the book of Daniel, most people stop at Daniel 6, and that's where Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, and they skip everything from the, you know, for the next 12, uh, 13 chapters in Daniel. So we're going to be continuing in here, and you're going to think, find things you didn't know and see things God doing and things that you probably haven't kept in mind. And, you know, kind of an interesting thing is how we read certain parts of these books and not all of them so often. And uh, so we're going to be looking at this and we're going to go into Joshua 7 and remember where we're at. They've just conquered Jericho. And that was a city that nobody ever believed that they could conquer, large walled city. They have no battering rams, no engineers to go under the city, no... No dynamite or, or explosives to blow up the city. Uh, they didn't use ladders and hooks and everything to get through the city. God brought the city to its knees. And they had a great victory. And if you remember, everything in the city, every living thing was to be killed in the city. Everything of gold and silver and precious stones was to be given to the temple. And everything else was to be destroyed. And that's what the... the place that we're at as we go into verse 7. Verse seven chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zibdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth Aven on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua, and they said unto him, Let not all the people go up, uh, uh, but let about two to three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they be but few." So they went up to there, and the people were about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote them, about 36 men, and they chased them from before the gate, even into Shebarim, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted as they be, and became as water. All right. So we see here, verse 1 is a foreshadowing of what, why this is happening. Achan has done something wrong. And Achan is going to be Achan by the end of this chapter. <laughs> so he's easy to remember his name. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Huh? Yeah, Troy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it gives him and it says that he's done something wrong. And it's the foreshadowing of what's happening. But as, as of this point, people do not know what he has done. And Joshua, in verse 2, sends men from Jericho to Ai... And they give this long description. It's, a, it's on AI is to the north of, of uh, Jericho. And he says, go up and look at the, look at the city. Go, go check it out. And they come back to Joshua and they say, you know, hey, Joshua, we don't need a lot of people to take this city. Compared to what we, basically they're saying, compared to what we just took, these are nobodies. They don't even have a big, they don't have a big wall. They're, they're a smaller city than Jericho. And remember, we talked about Jericho itself was only, a couple, a couple acre, eight to ten acres in, in itself, which wasn't a huge town, but it's a good-sized town for them, but it's not a very big town. And they're going up into AI, and they go, you know, hey, you know, we got this. We, we've got this town. You, you don't even need to send, you don't even need to send very many of the army. All you can do is send a couple thousand of us, and we'll, we'll take these guys. These are a piece of cake. We've, we've beat the Ammonites. We've beat, beat the Moabites. We beat Jericho. You know, these are nobodies. This is a danger that we do oftentimes as a Christian. The time you're in the most danger as a Christian is after some spiritual victory when it looks like you won the battle that you should never have won and the next thing you know, God, I can, I've got this. I can take care of this next battle. 
you know, you forget that it was God who gave you the victory. They forgot that it was God who gave them the victory. And they're looking at Ai and saying, ah, we got them. You know, nothing compared to Ammon, nothing compared to the Moabites. We can, we can take these guys. You know, they're, they're just a small city. We can take them. As a matter of fact, you know, don't even give us many men. They're saying take 3,000. The army is 160,000. Yeah, they're not even taking, they're taking less than 1% of their army and say, you, we can do it, or 2% of their, they're taking about 2% of their army and we say, we can, we can beat these guys. We can do it without God. And one thing you notice when, what we said when we read this, did we see anything about anybody praying? Anything about anybody asking God, should we go to this battle? There's no indication that any of that stuff happened. Is all we we beat we beat all these all these countries we beat Jericho we can beat these guys. We want to be so careful in our own lives that we don't get this attitude. Okay, God, you know, look at all the great things I'm, that you've done for me, and God, I've got this one. I've got this one, God. And then we end up just like they, they did. They got their butts kicked. <laughs> and granted, they only lost thirty six men, but still, this is an army that's been told. This is your country, and I'm kicking everybody out, and you're going to win. They have won all their battles up till now. They, they're not, they've not taken a defeat, and here they are, literally getting their butts kicked, and the small town is chasing their army back toward Jericho. And you've got to think about this. The people have been afraid of them because they haven't lost. God's been doing great things. Now they've taken a loss. What is that going to do to the people around them? Well, we don't understand this. Jericho got slaughtered by them and Ai beat them. It gives them some encouragement. Sure. They are beatable. They're not, they're, not, they're not somebody that is going to win everything. And it encourages the enemies. And it's the same thing that happens to us. When we do something of that nature and we go out and try to do things on our own and we get our butts kicked in us spiritually, the enemy gets encouraged. Well, oh, they're not they're not going to win. They're not going to win all the battles. And so we see this whole process coming in and they come back and they've been basically kicked around and in the last part of verse 6, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Okay, AI and, AI and, the, and the promised land people are getting excited. Oh, they can be beat. AI beats them. The people of Israel are saying... God let us down. And isn't that our attitude when we go out and do things on our own and we get our butts kicked on spiritually? We go, God, how could you let us down? And God said, well, I wasn't telling you to do it in the first place. And we've got to be very careful that we listen to God and follow him. And we do this so often. We go on and we do things without ever asking God, God, should I? God, should I move here? God, should I take this job? God, should I do this? Should we do this? And sometimes as a church, we'll do the same thing. We, well, this is what we've been doing. This is what we do every year. We've been doing it this way for 125 years. And so God say, well, yeah, and I stopped about uh, 100 years ago. <laughs> you know, maybe even 120 years ago. And we need to be able to always look and say, is this what God wants us to do? Because he is always new. His mercies are new every morning, and he's always moving something out. Most of us do most of our decisions without conversing with God at all. We go into our day-to-day -day routine, and when things start getting looking bad wherever we're at, we're going, okay, God, it must be time to go to the next job, go to the next town, go to the next city, go to the next state. And we don't consult with God to say, God, what is it you want me to do? We just do it. We make our pro-con list, and here's, here's all the good things on this side. Well, God, obviously, it's what I'm supposed to do. AI, you know, Joshua, AI is just a small town. We can, we can take it with our eyes closed. You don't need to send the whole, the whole people. Let the, let, let the people rest. You know, because they're, they're a pushover. We can take them. And Joshua didn't go to the before God, which is kind of unusual, because Joshua is usually pretty good about bowing his face down to God and saying, God, what do you want, what do you want us to do? He, they've conquered, they've crossed the Jordan River, they've conquered Jericho, and he's getting a little full of himself as well. You know, you know, hey, God's with us. He's doing all these great things. And this is, again, we need to be careful. And this is the story of AI is great for spiritual life because it is exactly what happens in our spiritual life. 
We get lots of victories and then we get our butts kicked. So we, we need to be considering him in everything we do. Otherwise, he's not Lord and Master. And I can tell you the times that in my life that I have done things without consulting God usually have been bad for me. And if they're bad for me, being the, the, a father and a husband, they've been bad for my family. And this is something we have to keep in mind. We never affect just ourselves when we go off on our own. We affect everybody who's around us. If, you have, if you're a spiritual leader, you definitely affect everybody around, you know, that is submitted to you. But even if you are, we're, we're part of the body of Christ. And when we mess up our, our life, we will affect. If I move away from someplace I'm not supposed to be moving away from, then the church that I'm supposed to be part of is affected by me not being there. The church that I go to that I'm not supposed to be at is going to have an effect to it because I'm there when I'm not supposed to be there. The one has it because I'm not where I'm supposed to, and the other one has an effect because I'm where I'm not supposed to be. Now, can that be, will God use it? Obviously, he says all things work together for good. But there's an impact on both sides of the coin because you're being disciplined and taught. There's other people that are in your life that get disciplined and, because you're being disciplined. <laughs> it's, it's quite an affair, and this is what we're going to see, Achan's sin is going to affect all of Israel. They've already lost 36 people because of his sin. All right? Now, part of that sin was that the leaders didn't go before God and say, God, should we go out? If they had done... Okay, so there's, there's compound problems in this story. So maybe they just go to Joshua's head too? Appears too. He didn't go to God and ask for, what should I do? You know, because he took their word. You know, well, yeah, we just took this big city. No problem. We can take the little city. But again, I don't want to criticize Joshua because we do this kind of stuff all the time in our life. The worst time that you can ever have is when you've had a great spiritual victory. Because you're setting yourself up. Because usually we're riding high on the crest thinking we can take on the world. And we forget that it's God that put us on top of the crest. And then we come crashing down because we make dumb decisions thinking that we're something special. Sports teams do. I mean, it's human nature. You get on top of the world. Your businesses do it a lot. They get on top of the world and think that they can stay there just by doing what they've always done while the other companies change what they're doing and, and, and make them look bad. We do this all the time. It's human nature. Status quo is what we like. When you're in the business world, when you're in life, we hate change. All of us do. Everybody hates change. We like, this is, I like it. This is what I've been doing, God. Why, why do you want to upset the apple cart, God? I like this. And God's saying, well, I've got new plans for you. I've got new things for you. And this is why I share with people, a lot of times when people have had some big spiritual event in their life, they're always trying to recreate the past event. And you cannot recreate the past event. It's kind of like if you've ever had a, your spouse and you snuggled down with them and you got yourself in just the right position. Everybody's all comfortable and the phone rings. <laughs> and somebody gets up and then you try to find that position again and it just can't be found. We tend to have that event with us. We get very comfortable at wherever we're at and we just don't want to see it change. And God say, no, I want you to grow. I want you to take it to the next step. Not, he doesn't repeat the old step with us. So, and many times, and this happens in church a lot of times, we remember when we did, and we had a great spiritual revival, so what do they do when it's time to try to get another spiritual revival? They try to go back and redo what they did before instead of going to God and saying, God, where do we go now? And it's very important that as a church, as individuals, as, as a group, we don't try to go back and recreate the heights in the past, we go forward with God into the newness and the freshness of our, our walk with him. Because he's not going to go backwards. You know, there's no reason why we have to do a move, but we also have to be spiritually ready to do whatever God asks us to do. And we're coming up on a time, you know, we're getting close to the end times where pressure is going to come on the church like we've never seen it before. And it's already starting in its very beginnings. It's going to get to a point where it's going to be hard to be a Christian. 
in this country, which means we just join the rest of the world. This country has been a great blessing for Christians for over 200 years. And it was founded on the whole idea that God is important and that pilgrims came. If you, if you know the story of, of them, they came to start a church and to evangelize the new world. That is why they came. They came to start a church because they were under persecution in, in, in Europe and England. So they came to start a church. Now, history is trying to change all of that and trying to say they came to plunder, the, plunder this country. That's not the original intents of the first groups. Now, were there people that came that wanted to plunder this country? Probably. But that wasn't the first groups. The first groups came to evangelize. We look at the foundation of this, this country, and it was strongly Christian. Um, very quickly fell away from it. <laughs> but it's strongly Christian, and its foundations were the freedom of religion, and that meant Christianity. In the mindset of the original founders, there was only one religion. When our founding fathers of this country said religion, they meant Christianity. Islam was a false religion. Uh, all other religions were false religions in their mindset. So when they, we've redefined religion since then. So they did, all these false religions are now considered religion, but in their mindset, they only believed in Christianity. Everything else was false. They all had false gods. They were not worshiping the God. Now, they understood there were different flavors of Christianity, but they, all the other ones were not religion. And so we've got to keep this in mind, and it's been changed over the years, like so many other words in our, our language have been, have been changed. The word tolerance has changed in its meaning completely. You know, for all of us in this room are old enough to remember when tolerance meant, meant that you had the right to believe what you wanted to believe. You're wrong, but you had the right to be wrong. Nowadays, tolerance means I have to tell you that what you believe, even though I believe it's wrong, is, is just as right as what I believe. Tolerance has totally been changed on its ears. Christians used to be the most tolerant people in the world because you had the right to be wrong, and we actually believed you were the, had the right to be wrong. Now we're the most intolerant people because we will not, if we're following God's word, say that all these other lifestyles and religions and everything are just as right as we are. So we have become the most intolerant out there. It's kind of an interesting thing. You've, we've got to look at how words change and how we, we, as we go forward. And this is why I say when we witness to people, we need to, number one, say, you know, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Tell me about your God. Well, God is in everything. It's in the trees and the rocks and the wind and the sky and the, you know, no, that's not God. <laughs> well, God is, God is Allah, the moon God. No, that's not God. So, you know, but we need to be careful because when people are saying they believe in God, we want to know what God they believe in. If they even talk about Jesus, what Jesus are they talking about? The historical Jesus that was just a man and a good philosopher? Jesus, the son, this, a son of God who has a brother named Lucifer from another religion? You know, Jesus who was just a great philosopher and teacher? Or there wasn't even a guy named Jesus. <laughs> Just a thought. Yeah. What, what, what are they at? And we need to be careful that we know what people are saying in our world of multiple different beliefs. And this is why it's important for us to be able to sit with God and say, God, what is it you want me to do? Knowing his word well enough and listening. Most of us do not hear God's word for the biggest reason is we're too busy and too much going on around us. And... In the older days, they spent hours in silence just to listen to God. How many of us can handle, in our day and age, even a couple minutes of silence? Have to have a radio going, have to have the TV in the background, have to have something going on, or we go crazy in the silence. I'm a generation of this, that I can't, I can't handle it, I can't concentrate in the silence. So, no, I don't want dogs, you know, I just. But most people can't in this, in this time. And we have to be busy. We're busy all the time, and we've got noise and activities, and, 
you know, in our day and age, most people can't sit still and not do an activity, much less silence. You know, we're getting to a generation that can't even sit still. You know, they've got to have their games, they've got to have their TV on, they've got to have a movie on, they've got to, you know, and they're... So we see a world who's getting further and further away from being able to hear God because they're not able to listen to for him. And we've talked about this. Jesus all the time stopped in the middle of doing things and did something else because the father said, this is what you're supposed to do. And, you know, on his way to heal Jairus and, and deals with the woman with the issue of blood on the way to Jerusalem and stops in Samaria and, and ministers to the, the woman at the well. You know, all over the time, all through the scriptures, you see Jesus stopping in the middle of doing stuff to do what the father tells him to do. You know, and we would look at it like, well, you were getting ready to do something important. Why stop? And we all end up in that way quite often where we are so busy doing important things that we miss what God is saying, saying to do. Satan is very busy trying to get us to settle for good instead of the best. And this is something we have to keep in mind. Many times people get so busy doing good things that they don't do what God is intending them to do. God says, I have you. This is the only job I want you doing. Quit doing these eight jobs that you're not called to do and do just this one job and do it wholeheartedly the way I've told you to do instead of nine jobs half-heartedly just because they need to be filled. And you'll look at it and say, well, I'm really busy, God. I'm doing lots of things for you, God. And God's saying, yeah, but you're not, doing, you're not doing what I told you to do or what I want you to do. And so we want to be very careful about this. And it says, as we get back to this, the people are fainting. They go, we've lost a battle. Okay. This generation has not lost a battle. They keep winning. This is the first time they've been beat. And where are they? They're in the promised land. They're not supposed to be beat in the promised land. So they're, they're now fearful. Verse 6. Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening time and the elders of the Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, therefore, wherefore have you brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to, de to destroy us? Would to God that we had been content to dwell on the other side of Jordan. This is kind of sound a little familiar to the grumbling they've been doing in the past. O oh Lord, and what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear it and, sh and shall environ around us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do unto your great name? Okay, this is the first time we have ever seen Joshua complaining. You know, Joshua's always been the strong pillar. He's been the general. He's been the leader under Moses. He's been ex excited as he's gone forward. He's, he's circumcised the, the people. They've had the great battle. They're, they've brought him into, across the, the Jordan River. And they've had their, vict their defeat, and, and he tears his clothes. And that's the, the sign of grief. They tore their outer garments and put them off, and they cover themselves with dust. He's in mourning. He's in mourning. We have, been, we have taken a great defeat, God. Never, never mind the fact that, Joshua, you didn't talk to God. You didn't pray to God. You didn't ask God whether you were supposed to do it. You just did it. But who's he blame? Same person we blame when things go wrong in our life when we haven't listened to God. God, it's your fault that I went the wrong direction. Uh, you didn't lasso me. You didn't grab me. You didn't, you know, thunder out to me not to do it. God, it's all your fault that I went the wrong direction. Does that, that stem from uh, us wanting him to stop us if we're facing a mistake? I think it's more the fact that we like to have somebody to blame. Amen. I think it's just we like to blame somebody. We, don't really, we didn't really want God to stop us anyway, but when we got into trouble for doing what we shouldn't have been doing, we want to blame God for not stopping us. I hear it all the time in the, at the prison. These guys, you know, it's not their fault that they did something wrong, most of them. Yeah. It's, it's it, well, it can, be, it can be God's fault. It can be their friend's fault. It can be, it's the person who dropped the dime on them and reported them. It's, you know, it's not their fault. Not because of something they did. No. There's a, guy that, there's a guy that I've talked to several times, and it's not his fault that it's, he's in prison. It's his girlfriend's fault because she didn't keep a good enough lookout 
to see that the police were coming to call him to get out of it, get out of it. But this is the way we think so often. God, I've done off and I've done what I thought was the best thing and you failed me, God, because I wasn't, you know, and we don't want to admit that we weren't doing what God, we didn't ask God, should we be doing it? We just went off and did it. It looked good. It seemed good. Been there, done that myself on several occasions. You know, some of my moves have been that. It just were not good moves because God wasn't in it. Like playing a game. Playing a game and you know, doing, things, doing things my way. Well, if you go back to that story, that's exactly when God said, Adam, what have you done? He says, basically, he goes, it's your fault. Because <laughs> if you look at it, he says, it was the woman you gave me, God. So it's her fault, but God is really your fault because you gave her to me. So Adam pointed both ways. Man has been doing this forever. God, it's your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. And we do the same thing so often. God, it's not my fault. We will be much better off when we come and say, God, I am so sorry that I have messed up. Please forgive me and, and, and repent and show me how to get out of it from this point. But you know, it's always harder to get back where you're supposed to be when you've gone the wrong direction. If you follow God and make your decisions based on his word, it's a lot easier to live. It's a lot easier to make your decisions to follow his word. And the way we, were, the way we are to look at life is when we're following God, and he's living in us and he's changing who, is, who we are, we stay far away from sin. When we're trying to play at doing good, we usually, the question you usually hear from people, and I've heard it so many times, how close can I get to this before I've crossed into the sin? How close can I get to sex before I've fallen into sex? That's what a lot of teenagers especially will be saying. You know, what, you know probably older people too. But I know teenagers are the ones I've had to deal with it the most. You know, how close, you know, where, where can we get before we cross the line? Entertaining the thought. Well, entertaining the thought is good. He's already crossed the line. It's from God's perspective. Yeah. And it should be how far can I stay away from it? Amen. Not how close can I get. How close can I get before I'm stealing something? How close to the truth, can, uh, to the lie away from the truth can I get before I've broken the truth? That's a big one that a lot of people go. How much of the truth do I have to tell to be telling the truth, and how much non-truth can I say before I've broken, you know, before I've lied? That's true, but you know what? You're in trouble already. <laughs> you, anytime you're in that, how close can I get it, or how far can I go? You're in trouble. You're already in trouble if you're you're thinking about how close can I get before I'm breaking it. How how far can I stretch this before I've broken it? If you continue walking away from what God is intending, you're going to harden your heart. Whatever it might be. Even Christians, I mean, it's not necessarily that you've gone into deep, dark sins. It's just you're not where God wants you to be. Anytime you start always lumping people together and saying all people are like this, or even the majority of people are like this, you're in trouble. Christian, you know, people do it with Christians. All these Christians are, are phony. You know, all these Christians are hypocrites. Why do they say that? Because they've met a lot of Christians or people that say they're Christians. And they're hypocrites. And we've all seen them. If you've been in church any length of time, you've seen lots of hypocrites. They say one thing and they live something totally different in their, in their, once they're not in church. We've seen them. We've all seen them. Hopefully we're not them. But people look at them and say, well, I've known you know, three terrible Christians out of the ten, so they're all hypocrites. You know, and unfortunately, it's probably a higher percentage than three out of ten. Stereotype. You know, we get into a stereotype, and we need to be very careful about this. We need to be using our spiritual discernment and dealing with each person individually. And no matter what it is, any group, uh, there's not all good people in one group and all bad people in another group. There's always a mix of good and bad in every single group. If you're talking about certain groups, you might be less bad or in, in, and more good or less good and let more, more bad, but you're still good and bad in every group. So we want to be very careful with that. And we're going to get back on the topic here. So Joshua and the people are, are gone, and Joshua's complaint to God, you know, you just read this, and it sounds so much like the first Pentateuch, you know, God, we should, we should be back there. God, why did you ever bring us over this river? God, why did you ever take us out of Egypt? We had all these great things in Egypt. Yes, we were slaves, but we had lots of food. We had, we had, we had all kinds of houses. We had houses. We had all this stuff. But we were slaves, but God, we had all this stuff. And Joshua was like, here, God, we, 
We, we were okay. We were okay with the, the, the eastern side of the Jordan. We had lots of land there. Why did, why did you bring us over here to get us beat? We want to be so careful, but you know, again, isn't as we're reading this, this is our attitude to God. God, it was so good back there. Have you ever looked back and said, God, it was really good back there. I'm not really liking where you have me now. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, and God is really tough here. I don't like looking at death. I don't like seeing the flesh crucified. I don't like all this. And he goes, but there's a banquet at the end of this. Come and keep going. We tend to look back, and you know, humans have this great capacity to look back and forget the bad things and remember the good. You know, we get saved because we don't like the sin that we're in and we're, we're miserable. We're waking up with a hangover every morning. We can't remember what we did the day before. No joy in our life. And we become a Christian. We're all happy. It's, you know, God is in our life. And then we go down a few years and it's like, God, uh, life is getting really tough. I kind of I liked it back there. What's, you know, going back to Egypt. Always remembering what it used to be. What it used to be. And even if you've been a Christian a long time, it may not be going all the way back to before Jesus' days. It's like, uh, God, you know, we used to have a real good time here when it was just you and me and this, that. And now, you know, you're taking me through some pretty hard things, God. You're, you're trying to change my life. The good old days. The good old days. Yeah. And, we, and we tend to always look at the past with rose-colored glasses in our, in our vision. It was really good back then. We don't remember all the bad necessarily. We kind of, in one side, know if we think about it, if you've ever tried to do a job that you've left and go back to it. <laughs> I did that with restaurant management when I first came back here. I went back to it. And I, all I remember was all the stuff I liked about restaurant manager. It didn't make, take me very long to remember all the stuff I didn't like about restaurant management. Selective memory. Yeah. Selective memory. Uh, and we do this, and Joshua's in this place. God, we had, it, we had it made over there. We had all this land. You know, we were, we, 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 our six and a half million people fit in that land. You didn't have to bring us over here to get our, have our butts kicked, to, kicked, uh, kicked and, and lose a battle. And it says, but, I, you know, but his still has this, verse 9 says, for they are going to be challenged by this. They're going to think that they can win now, God. You let us lose, God. Now, God, our enemy is going to be encouraged. Okay? And this is his, pl this is his plea. God, our enemy, is now encouraged. Verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get you up. Where, why are you lying upon your face? <laughs> I love God's answer. You know, uh, Joshua, what are you laying down on the ground for? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have taken of the accursed thing and have stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. But up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourself against the morrow, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel. There is an accursed thing in the midst of you, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall bring it according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to their families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by its households. And the households which, fam which the Lord shall, lay, shall take man by man. And it shall be that he that has taken the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. And all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has wrought folly in Israel. All right, so God says, uh, Joshua, get off your face. You're not where you're supposed to be. He goes, if you guys had not sinned, you wouldn't have been beat, so get, get back and take care of what's going on. How often do we wallow in our defeats with God? You know, God, uh, you are just so miserable. You let this happen to me. And yeah, it was my fault, God. In the back of our mind, we know it's our fault. You know, it was really my fault, God, but I'm just going to wallow around in this pig's life sty for a while because I am just so angry at you, God. You just let this happen. And God's saying, get up. Get up. Many times we need to get up and get off our face and quit griping to God when we need to clean up our life and fix it. If we were talking about people, it's my fault because I trusted her to no, because God already, God, already, God already knows what we're going to do. He created man knowing that man was going to sin. He does not put his trust in us. He knows that we're most often going to fail. 
Now, in one sense, when I say that, he has also put it, he's given us a command, go make disciples. But he has not put his trust in us. He does not put his trust in man. He desires us to do it, and he's going to bless us when we allow him to work through us. Because he knows we can't do it. He desires us to allow him to crucify our flesh so that we will do what he wants us to do. Most of my discipleship has been with my kids. There's been a handful of other people that I've discipled over time and people in this church that are being discipled. And the greatest thing about discipling somebody is when you watch and you see their life changing because, you, because you've been able to help them make their course corrections. So the discipling, would it go as far as them accepting God? Is that, that, is that the point where they become a disciple? No, that's the beginning. Discipleship is teaching them how to... Too many people in church that, are, that may or may not be Christian, I'm not going to judge this, made a decision for Christ and then never get discipled and never try to get discipled. Part of it is a kind of a two-way street. I may have the greatest heart in the world to disciple somebody, but if they don't want to be discipled by me, it's not going to happen. You can be discipled the wrong way. Well, yeah, I mean... Disciple just means to be a follower of a discipline. Okay. Uh, now we use the word disciple as Christians and we think of Jesus' disciples or us following Jesus. But literally, in the university system as it was created, you studied disciplines and you were a disciple of the discipline. Okay. You agreed that you were going to learn to think in a certain way and you studied that way of thinking. That's literally what disciple means. Student of a discipline is really learning a way of thinking, which is what we're doing when we try to teach people. This is how you think with God or like God by getting you in the word and letting the word change how you think. Mentor would be a good word for somebody who's discipling. They will help you when they see you doing something wrong. If you're, if you're really their disciple, they're going to come and yell, you really need to kind of think about what you're doing. And depending on your relationship, you can do it harder or not hard. Some people I've been in my life, I can do it really hard with. Some I have to be really gentle with. Because uh, some know that, know that we have a discipleship relationship, a mentor-discipleship relation. Others are, are a much gentler way. And this is why for most of us as, as parents, we should be discipling our children. Our children should be learning how to think with God, and we should be teaching them. And... This is why I say, you know, did I do a lot of sitting down with the family and we're going to do Bible studies at home? No, we didn't do a lot of that in my house. Did we bring God's word into just about everything that was going on in their life? Yes. Okay. We bring his, bring in his word and, and not as a battering ram. I've seen a lot of Christians use it as a battering ram. Well, you know, God doesn't want you to do And they attack him with God's word. That's not discipleship. That's not teaching them how to think. That's trying to use a battering ram, a, a hammer on them. And we need to be giving them God's word and teaching them how to think. And, you know, Joshua is being told, you know, hey, you know, get up. You're get learning up. from somebody in particular, usually. It is technically possible to be, to be discipled by somebody on the radio or the TV. But that's really not going to be the same, you know, a- action. I've had, I listened to a pastor, he goes, well, you know, if somebody comes to him and goes, well, you're not really in my church. He goes, well, I come twice a year. He goes, well, what do you do? Well, I watch TV. He goes, well, if you need help, then go talk to that pastor that's really your discipler. Well, I can't talk to him. Well, that's why you need a home church. <laughs> you know, you need a home church where you're really being discipled and trained, where somebody can say, this is where you are. So, and this is why when you hear people, and I hear it a lot at the prison, you need a church. Well, I don't believe in organized religion. What they're really telling you is they don't want to be accountable to anybody else. All right? It's not that they're really having a problem, but they don't want to be accountable to anybody. And by not being part of a church, they can go, well, I'm just me. I'm, I'm my independent person. Me and God can handle anything until you fall off out on your face. When you're, when you're in trouble, you want somebody there to help lift you up. But what you really want is God and somebody there to help lift you up. When you see that brother that says, you know, hey, you're making a really bad decision, you know, would you listen to me? That's us. Iron sharpens iron. That's the purpose of the church is to hold one another accountable before God.
So like when, when guys remember the 12 disciples, he said, go out and make disciples. So that he meant, like, you go out and teach them, beginning with the other. Not just getting them to be, yeah. say a prayer. When we look at what Paul did when he, in the book of Acts as he, as, he create, as he made all these churches, Paul only stayed at each place for two to three years, usually. That meant he saved somebody, saved a group of people, picked somebody to be truly discipled and poured a whole bunch of information into them and made them the pastor within three years and went to the next church. Okay? But he poured he would find somebody who really had a heart for God and he'd pour everything he had into him. But they also knew that if they wanted to get Paul, they'd just send him a letter and, and talk to him and talk to other people and they knew how to get the help. And this is what I said. I've studied God's word long enough. I don't usually need a lot of help, but I know who to go to when I need help. I've got people that I go to. Do I go to them every day, every week, every month? No, not anymore. But it used to be, hey, uh, I need some help. <laughs> You know, what do you think about this scripture? Or, or God showed me this. What do you think? And I've got people who call me, especially Annie. <laughs> it is to keep them. True discipleship is where you have somebody that can say the hard things in your life. The person who is your disciple can actually be the one that says, you know, you've been a real dummy this, this last week. You know, you've been, you've been making a lot of wrong decisions. You need to be following God, and here's God's word. Get up off your face. Get up off your face. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're on your face because you did the wrong things. Now get up off your face and, and get going. And you should have got on your face before. Yeah. 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 And you know, here's what God says. Get up and sanctify the people. Separate them. And I'm going to show you. You're going to have the, you're going to have the people come in before you. And I'm going to tell you who it is. And you know, we look at this. And what's going to be the penalty? You know, verse 15. And it shall be that... He that has taken the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he has. His whole family is going to be burnt. Now why? As we're going to find out, he hid it in the tent, so they knew that it was in the tent. They, they are tacitly saying it's okay to disobey God. So even if he's got a six-week-old baby, that baby went in the fire with him. Whatever, whatever, because he brought a judgment upon Israel. This is the problem with being a head of anything. Achan is the head of his family. They're going to suffer because of his disobedience. Israel has already suffered because of his disobedience. Right. Joshua has let the people suffer because of his disobedience by not asking God. You see how this keeps rolling in. If Joshua had gone to God and said, God, what do you think? What should we be doing? God would have said, sanctify your people because there's sin in the camp. Would Achan have paid as much of a penalty? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. He took something that was definitely not supposed to be taken, but he also was responsible for losing 36 lives along with Joshua for not having gone to God in the first place. Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. He took something that he wasn't allowed to keep. Okay, but you see how when one person sins in a, in a group, in a family, in a church... Everybody's going to suffer. If somebody does a major sin in a, in a church, the church suffers because the reputation of the church is sullied. You know, this person was whatever. And how could they accept that? And you know, we see this over and over again. This is why it's important to have somebody who's discipling that can say, you know, hey, you need, to get, you need to get your act together. We need to call sin, sin. And you know, I've said it many times. I don't care what sin you're committing when you come to church. Don't try to expand it in the church. You try to expand it in the church, we've got a problem. Because there's a reputation for the church. Now, am I going to say your sin is okay? Absolutely not. If you're living together with somebody, I'm going to call it fornication and a sin. If you're committing adultery, I'm not going to say, well, it's okay. That's the way the world is. Do they know it is sin? If you're in a homosexual relationship, it's not going to say, it's okay. I'm going to say, it is sin. Am I going to say, you've got to get out of the church because of it? No. Now, if you're coming in trying to get everybody to participate with you in your sin, you're going out the church. Okay. You know, we're not, we're, we're not bringing sin in and, say, and celebrating sin. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, how can you have this man in your church who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and bragging about it, and everybody's telling him it's okay, get him out of the church. 
Okay? It wasn't his sin that kicked him out. It was his attitude toward it that it's okay and, I'm gonna, and you need to celebrate it. That was the problem. Now he wrote in 2 Corinthians, you'll bring him back. He's repented and forgiven. Bring him back. Uh, because they were, okay, Paul said kick him out. He's gone forever. That wasn't what Paul was saying. Paul said kick him out until he has repented. And when he did repent, they didn't bring him back. There is that point where the discipline is to get somebody to come back. Not to be permanently kicked out. God's mercy and grace is what's important. All right, verse 16. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. So now he's bringing the heads of each of the tribes. And whether they did this by lot or God just said this is it, you know, what it is, God's going to work his way down to Achan eventually. And, I, and it doesn't really, it's not clear how each one was chosen. It would have been traditional to each one of them put a sticker or stone or something in and have it drawn out. And, and because their mentality was that God was in control of the lots. Okay, so, but it doesn't say that that's how they did it in this case. And he says, and he, so Judah was taken. And he brought the families of Judah, and he took the family of Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zibdi was taken. And he brought his house man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zibdi, the son of Zerah, the son of, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. So they got it down to the man. <laughs> you know, you got to be thinking about this. You know, Achan knows that he's done wrong. As we're going to find out, he's going to, he's going to admit and, you know, he's probably kind of hoping, well, maybe they'll pick the wrong name. Maybe there's somebody else that they're picking. Maybe somebody else is worse than me. <laughs> you know, as he's watching Judah, <laughs> each, each gun, then he sees his dad's house being taken. And it's like, uh, maybe, maybe I'm not going to get away with this. <laughs> maybe, maybe my brother did something worse than me. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, in verse 19, And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give, I pray you, glory to God, the Lord God of Israel, and make a confession unto him, and tell me what it is you have done. Hide it not from me. Achan, you're guilty. Tell us what it is. Tell us what you've done. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Behold, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus, and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils of a goodly Babylonish garment, and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels of weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in, in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. So he says, hey, I saw, some really, I saw this really nice garment and a whole bunch of gold and silver, and I coveted it. He's a thief. He's a, he ends up becoming a thief. Coveting is probably the worst thing that can happen to us. You know, we, we think about the, the Ten Commandments, and the very last one is, thou shalt not covet. You know, how much of what we do wrong is based in that last commandment? God, you're just not what I want, so I'm going to go seek a God that gives me more of what I want. God, uh, I am, I want, I'm not happy with my wife. I'm going to go get a different wife because, uh, because I'm just not happy with it. I want something more. God, I'm not happy with, you know, Coveting, being made uncomfortable and wanting something that is not ours. In our day and age, we've got a whole industry that is designed to make us covet. It's called advertisers. Mm -hmm. Their job is to make you want something that you never knew you needed and probably don't need. But their job is to make you just feel miserable because you don't have what it is that you never knew you needed. Yeah, I never, never knew I needed this, never knew I had a problem until you, until you saw it on TV that I have this problem and you have the answer for it. That's their job, to create covetousness in us so that we'll go out and buy what we don't need. He saw something and he knew that it was wrong and he, and he said, I want it. Most of our troubles that we have in our life is, God, I want something that you have not given me. Whether it is, God, I'm moving because I'm just not happy with where I'm at. God, I need a new job because I'm just not making enough money. I'm not ministering to enough people because you've only got 20 people for me to minister. I'm going to go to this job where I don't know anybody. They're going to pay me more, but I'm not going to be able to minister for you. Now, how many of us have done something like that? Left someplace where a ministry was going on because we just weren't satisfied with what God gave us. and said, I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to go do something else. 
We've all done it. We've all done it at some point in our life where we just say, you know, we're not happy with whatever it is that God has given us. And here we see Achan hiding his, hiding his sin. Yeah. How often do we try to hide our sin? You know, God, you, don't, you didn't see me take this, and God, you didn't see me hide this, and God, you're just going to let me get away with sin and not reveal it. Be sure your sins will find you out. And usually it is in direct re relationship to how important you are. If you're just a, a nobody, then you're going to have very few people know about your sin. Pastors who sin, especially if they have a big church, everybody in their church, everybody in their church is going to know that they have not repented of their sin. How do you get it to not be revealed to everybody? Repent. <laughs> Confess and repent. David sinned with Bathsheba, and what was the, the consequence? The entire nation learned of his indiscretion. And all the nations around him. God says, okay, you're king. You, you, you thought you could get away with this? I'm going to let everybody know your sin. They didn't have TV back then. And they didn't have TV back then. No, all word of the, <laughs> the news has always traveled fast. Always. Even, even before electronic communication, the news would get there oftentimes before it would be broadcast to the place. Sometimes it beat the horse there to it, and it was like, how did, could you beat the horse rider to the town when you know, it gets there and they already know the news? <laughs> it's an amazing thing how fast bad news, especially bad news, mm -hmm. travels. And when we sin, God will bring out our sin. First, he'll show it to you. He says, are you willing to confess it? Are you willing to give it up and, and get rid of it? If you are, then it can stay hidden because you've dealt with it. If you don't, God eventually will bring it out. He will say, this is your sin. Okay, everybody now knows it. Now you, now you better repent. <laughs> because everybody knows what a miserable, rotten wretch you are. Which we are anyway, so we shouldn't be trying to hide our sin. And so Achan is in this position. And then verse... Uh, 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran into the tent and behold, it was hid in the tent and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought it unto Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid it before the Lord. And Joshua and all, the children, all of Israel took him, with him took Achan, the son of Zerath, and the silver and the garments and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought him into the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord shall trouble you this day. And all of Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. This is a severe punishment. All right. If Achan had been caught long before any of this, it might have been just Achan who got punished. Or if his family had said, Hey, he's got this stuff, only Achan would have been punished. But because of all this happening and sin being brought into the camp, Achan and everything he owns is destroyed because of one person. And it, we don't know how big his family was, but it does say sons and daughters and all of his, all of his possessions. So we, got a, we know that there's at least six people in the family that died and probably more. They knew it. They didn't stop him. And this is why God is very serious about sin. If we know that there's somebody sinning, if we really love them, we're going to challenge them. You know, hey, this is not something you're supposed to do. We're not going to accuse them. We're not going to, you know, get after them in a way. But, you know, we've talked many times. If we approach somebody in love, if we truly love somebody, we're not going to let them keep doing something that's going to lead to destruction. But we need to be praying for them and gently rebuke. You know, we don't come in with an with a eight-pound sledgehammer and beat them over the head with it to, to, to try to get their attention. It's a loving rebuke. You know, that's not honoring God. That's not what you want to be doing. But it starts with prayer. Always starts with prayer. And I've said many times, if you're not praying for somebody, you have zero business talking to them about their sin. If you don't love them enough to pray for them, you really don't love them enough to be correcting them. And you know what? Most of the time, if you pray for them, God will correct them without you even having to say anything. 
I've seen that happen many times. God, I'm really worried about this person. Help me learn how to say it. And the next thing I know, they've confessed and, and moved on. Didn't take me saying anything to them. Why? Because prayer moves God's hands. And we want to see this in, you know, they, they, we see this man being, being judged because his sin was so grievous because it dishonored God and hurt the people. Verse 26, And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor to this day. Now, I don't know if it still is, but as of the writing of this book. So we look at this and the seriousness of sin. Our sin, and I just really keep wanting to bring this this. When we sin, we do not affect just ourselves. And we hear this all the time. Well, it's just between me and God. No, it's not between you and God. It's destroying God's reputation. It's destroying the church that you're part of. It's destroying your family. And it will bring judgment on you and everybody that you're in contact with will be touched by that judgment. Even if... It just touches that person and God takes them out. Okay, If Achan had been the only one that got punished and he died, okay, he still would have affected his whole family. They're without the patriarch of their family now because of his sin. You know, so if you even want to say, it only affects me, it never does. We are not islands unto ourselves out in the middle of nowhere, no matter how we want to be sometimes. <laughs> Some of us, you know, that are introverted and would just like to stay at home, and I can say this because I'm that type of person, I would just love to stay at home and not talk to people. Even when I was in my worst case, I still would have people that would be affected if God judged me. Because I touch other people whether I want to or not. There's always consequence for sin. We've talked about this many times. There's always consequence, and it's much more than just consequence to you as an individual. Your family will be touched, your, your direct family, your indirect family, your church family, the nation, the, the communities. Each community we have has problems. Why? Because they're not honoring God in the, at the community level. The churches need to go out and change the communities. If every church changed the community that they were in, we'd have a huge revival in this country. Because every, every community would then affect every part of everything above them. And there's enough churches in America that you'd be touching every community just about. So we want to just keep in mind, Aiken's story is one that teaches us the importance of the interconnectivity of all of us and that sin is not just touch us. It's like a cancer and it spreads. And it just doesn't spread just in us. And when we sin, we end up going deeper and deeper in sin. Sin is never satisfied with just staying stable. If you're somebody that uh, lies and you get away with it and you start making lying a lifestyle, your lies get bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually people are looking at you and go, well, I never know whether this person's ever telling the truth because every time they talk, they're lying. You know, and anybody who's ever been into drugs or alcohol, you don't stay with the same amount of alcohol. You don't stay with the same amount of drugs. It keeps intensifying and becoming bigger. The person who's committing adultery, you know, or use fornication, you know, and it used to be, it would be once in a while, and then you get these people on one night stand, every night a new person. Why? Because they're just not happy. Sin is never satisfied. It always wants more. Always. Always wants more, bigger, stronger, deeper. And eventually, if it takes over your body and, you know, your mind and it starts, you act out. You know, and this is why it's important. All this violence, there is, a, there is a reality to the exposure to all the violence that we have eventually will be acted upon because we get tired of watching it. And it becomes who we are if we're not careful. And this is why we want more and more of God so that he comes out and we become like him. You will become like what you spend time with, who you worship, who you spend time with. The more time you spend with God, the more you will become like God. The more time you spend away from God, the more, time, the more you will become like whatever it is that you're spending time with. When these people would uh, worship Astora, uh, Baalim, you know, uh, 
Diane, all these fertility goddesses, they became very overly sexualized people, and adultery and fornication was the way they lived. You become like what you worship. The scriptures tell us, and we know that it's true. And we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for everything you've given. Lord, help us to, number one, clean up our own lives and confess before you and correct. Lord, help us also to find people to disciple that we can train up into following you. Lord, help us to find those that are our disciplers that we know who to talk to to help us work better. And Lord, we ask that you go out before us and you help us pray for others and build purity within our organizations and our churches and our families and and our communities. In Jesus' name, amen.